Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One from the Commonwealth Club: A conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. As U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell oversees one fifth of the country's total landmass, a vast portfolio that includes national parks and the Department of Fish and Wildlife. She also oversees landscapes used for livestock grazing, coal mining, and oil drilling. Nearly one third of American energy production comes from federal lands. In the next hour, we'll talk with Secretary Jewell and our live audience about con- conserving America's natural heritage. And meeting the country's energy needs—that's a tall order in normal times, and it's even more challenging in the era of climate disruption that is driven by burning fossil fuels. Prior to joining the Obama administration earlier this year, Sally Jewell was CEO of Seattle-based outdoor retailer REI. Trained as an engineer, she worked for Mobile Oil in the oil fields of Oklahoma, and then for banks lending to the petroleum industry. Please join me in welcoming Secretary Jewell to the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, Secretary Jewell. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about that tension uh, between protecting America's natural heritage and extracting resources. It's a little bit like the peace police running bars and you know dance clubs. I mean, it's it's a little strange to, to get around both of those in, in one organization. So, how do you approach balancing that those two things? I think it's a challenge that we all have. Uh, show of hands for somebody that's used no fossil fuels today. I don't see a single hand. Which uh, you know we are we are energy consuming people, um, and yet we are also people that I think can learn from science. We can apply technologies. We can change the way we do things. And you know if we could turn back the clock and and using the knowledge that we have now and apply that uh, back maybe a couple hundred years ago, we might be in a different situation than we're faced with now. I, I have a large portfolio, as you point out. Um, it certainly has uh, many resources that belong to all American people, and there are elements on those resources that are important for energy development, but also places that are too special to develop. And my job is in balancing this complex portfolio, and it is indeed uh, very, very complex. 
And recently you outlined your vision for uh, your role as uh, Secretary of the Interior, and a lot of that had to do with youth engagement. So how do you plan to get young people off the couch and into national parks? (laughs) Well, first, uh, a lot of young people aren't on the couch. Uh, Today I had the privilege of doing some service work out in Chrissy Field with a group of uh, young people who represent Student Conservation Association and a number of other youth conservation corps from throughout the Bay Area. And these are young people that are absolutely not on the couch. They are making your public lands better for everybody. So um, we're part, I am part, I don't want to make assumptions about you, Greg, but I'm part of the baby boom generation. Uh, We are, uh, as a generation, uh, 76 million strong. Uh, the largest generation in the history of the United States is not us. It's the millennial generation, uh, born between 1980 and 1995, and they are already 3 million larger than we are, 76 million. And they care about the environment, and they care about the planet, and they want, they're worried about the situation that it's in, and they want to be part of the solution. And the young people I worked with today are being part of the solution. And part of what I can do as Secretary of the Interior is use the megaphone that comes with this job to make sure that young people know that we welcome them on our public lands, all of them, uh, that public lands can be theirs. They're not scary places. They're places to be embraced. They're places that are important for water quality and clean air and uh, breathing space. And uh, so the uh, opportunity that we have uh, at Interior, I think, is to make those public lands accessible and work alongside Cities like uh, San Francisco and Oakland and other cities around the Bay Area, but a number throughout the country to make sure that we're highlighting the importance of public lands close to home as well as far away. And some of the things you outlined were educational opportunities for students K through 12 and 1 million volunteers on public lands by 2017. Uh, How can you fund these new things when Congress doesn't want to give you any money? Well, you know, the Civilian Conservation Corps was... Uh, a huge, huge effort during the Great Depression, much worse economic times than we're dealing with now. And it was important to the American people to give young people jobs who were unemployed or underemployed, to put them to work on public lands that needed their support. And we are still the beneficiaries of the hard work and the support that these young men Uh, from all over the country, got from their federal government recognizing the importance of work and the importance of public land stewardship. And there are examples coast to coast, north to south, of the work of the CCC. Today, uh, we don't view the federal government in the same way. Uh, And so what's the CCC 2.0? And our answer to that is what we're calling the 21st Century Conservation Service Corps, or 21 CSC. And the difference is engagement with the private sector. Uh, engagement with uh, local cities and counties and states, as well as the federal government. Engagement with uh, businesses. So today we had a roundtable discussion that included a number of enlightened businesses. Uh, Businesses like American Eagle Outfitters, that is a national sponsor of the Student Conservation Association, or Camelback, which makes hydration uh, for the outdoor industry, or Sutter Health and my... uh, former colleague from the REI board, Steve Lockhart, who's in the audience uh, here with his family. Um, these are enlightened individuals that represent businesses that want to be part of the solution. There's organizations represented here tonight, like the Nature Conservancy or the Trust for Public Land or the Student Conservation Association and youth corps around. So the difference between the CCC back in the 30s 
and what we're doing with the 21 CSC today is it's far more holistic. It's involving volunteers. Uh, the military is probably not going to sign up to pay for all this, which uh, they, they played a major role in the 30s. But veterans who are returning, who know how to camp, they know logistics, they know organization, they know leadership. Uh, there's nothing like the outdoors and working on public lands to heal some of the scars that wars dish out to our troops. And so the 21 CSC will be about veterans. It'll be around youth. It'll be around engaging the business community, engaging the nonprofit community. And uh, we'd like to see uh, millions out volunteering on public lands. San Francisco is unique in the sense that it does have a, a national park basically within the city boundaries and a lot of national lands nearby. But, but the traditional model is Yellowstone, uh, Yosemite, uh, these grand monuments where people have to travel a great distance to. A lot of people these days can't afford to get there. Uh, so you mentioned urban parks. Is it part of your vision to bring parks to the people rather than people to the parks, more urban parks, closer to uh, population centers? It, it's certainly... Uh critical that urban parks be part of an equation of public lands, whether they're federally owned urban parks, as you have here with the Golden Gate Natural, uh, National Recreation Area. You felt the shutdown, right? When your urban parks are run by the federal government, you feel it. And if there's a silver lining to this shutdown, it is that people had a much better appreciation of how much they use and uh, enjoy these lands. But it also, part of our vision is to work closely with 50 cities across the country in engaging more children and having opportunities to play and learn on public lands, whether or not they're federal. So it's a couple of programs that have been quite successful. The Urban Parks um, uh, Program, UPAR, it's called, is something that's in the president's budget that has really helped us bring uh, resources and knowledge from the federal government to support work on urban parks that are owned by cities and counties and states. There is the um, uh, Rivers and Trails Conservation Assistance Program, Again, expertise coming for trails and bike paths and other things that connect people to nature, not necessarily on public, uh, public lands. And then, of course, uh, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which took uh, revenue from oil and gas sales offshore and brought that to bear in supporting public lands at every level. And it's those kinds of programs that we can work with urban parks, whether they're federal or, or local, to uh, make sure that children have places to play and to learn and to eventually serve and hopefully also to work. Is that Land and Water Conservation Fund currently funded? The Land and Water Conservation Fund is appropriated by Congress. So it was uh, an early example of brilliance in terms of if you're going to allow development of offshore oil and gas, it's going to have an impact. And don't we know that after the Macondo spill? But we can take some of the money from that oil and gas development and use it to support conservation objectives uh, onshore. And so that was 1964. It's coming up on its 50th anniversary next year. And it is very important that we continue to support that in the future. It has only once been funded at the full, uh, appropriated at the full level of funding. Uh, roughly $900 million a, a year is generated and only once has it been funded at that level. So, uh, the funds are coming into the Treasury, but they aren't being appropriated by Congress. In the President's budget uh, for 2014, we asked for mandatory funding for half of the allocation and in the, with full funding uh, requested for 2015. That would make an enormous difference in our ability to help urban areas, 
rural areas, national parks, local parks uh, do the job that they need to do and engage more young people? Uh, there's a Republican senator, Tom Coburn, who's been uh, did a report on the national park system. Says there's close to three billion dollars of deferred maintenance at uh, the top ten national parks, and says that some new parks have very few visitors. Uh, so I'd like to hear your thought on, uh, as CEO of REI, if something didn't sell, maybe you wouldn't carry that product. What do you do with a park that not many people go to, uh, and deferred maintenance at some of the the Keystone uh, parks in the system? Well, I would point out that uh, deferred maintenance is solved by funding our national parks at an appropriate level. Uh, by passing a, a budget for this government where we, we who are charged with managing assets in perpetuity can actually operate on something more than a month-to-month continuing resolution or a sequester, which is, as a business person, the dumbest way to run anything, uh, and Congress dished that out to us, as well as um, the kinds of uh, 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 impact that we had from a 16-day completely wasteful government shutdown that cost us more money. So we could start by being rational about how we spend the money that we have. And those many of those same legislators who criticize us for not taking care of the assets we have in public will ask me in private for a national park in their district. So um, the reality is people love their public lands, and they want them to be taken care of. Uh, you see parks levies passed in states. You see them passed in cities. People care about these things. It's about quality of life. It's about healthy children. It's about healthy watersheds. So I, I don't think that the argument is fair. I will also say that uh, our charge is not to operate parks as businesses. Our charge is to... Uh, really tell the story of America to protect the history and the culture of this land and those places that are too special to develop, whether or not they have a lot of visitors, as you have in a place like Yosemite, or whether they have limited visitors. Our job is not to drive a return on that investment, even though we do. Uh, Our job is to protect these assets in perpetuity for not just this generation, but future generations, and to take care of these assets. Thank you. The National Park System is coming up on its 100th uh, anniversary. What kind of birthday party you got planned? <laughs> well, the best birthday present we could get is a budget that supports the Park Service. So there's nothing better than that. Um, there's a lot of work that's uh, been going on with uh, organizations like the National Park Foundation, which was stood up by Congress as a nonprofit organization to support the national parks. National Parks Conservation Association is active in this. Uh, National Parks Friends groups that are all over the country are working to support their parks. Um, And while private philanthropy should be the margin of excellence, not the margin of survival, and unfortunately in many of our parks, uh, private philanthropy has become a margin of survival because of uh, what's happened with some of the challenges, uh, the cuts that we've had. Um, but uh, we don't want the centennial to go by uh, without really putting our national parks on people's radar and using the, the national parks as a way to celebrate all parks and all open space. So you talked about the importance of urban parks. You will see the National Park Service leverage 
um, the message around the National Park Centennial to support local parks, whether they have an affiliation or don't have an affiliation. It's a very, very important opportunity. So there's a lot of work going on, uh, a lot of work focusing on the millennial generation and younger, a call to action to get uh, young people into the parks, and frankly, a call to action to the park service itself to structure itself for the 21st century. You mentioned parks in the context of uh, fitness and outdoors. Uh, a lot of times people go to the parks, uh, and there's been some thought recently about the food that's served in the parks. You go to the park, great outdoors, healthy, and you got chili cheese fries and burgers and that sort of thing. I mean, is that on your radar at it all, sort of aligning those, the health uh, of the food that's served and, and the recreation? So, Greg, you have not been to a park recently. Uh, I've been to a lot of them. Have you? Have well, you? I don't. The ones here in San Francisco don't count because there's the bubble. I mean, I'm, I have been to <laughs> um, the, the Tetons and other places, but well, I shouldn't be putting you on the spot. That's your job. That's all right. Uh, but <laughs> so the um, the major concessionaires in the national parks have stepped up with a healthy food initiative, and they've got great food now available in national parks. Now, if you want the chili cheeseburger, you can probably still get it. Because there is the law of supply and demand, and there still is a demand for those things. But uh, the large concessionaires who've got the major contracts in the, uh, the larger national park facilities have all partnered on local food, on healthy food, on food choices, on vegetarian choices. We rolled this out of the National Mall uh, just after I started in this job, actually. So I got to go down and eat all this incredible food on the mall produced by... Um, these uh, these wonderful concessionaires, and they're rolling it out throughout. Because you're right, uh, when you are about health, when the only options you can get are uh, unhealthy options, especially for young people, that's kind of sending a mixed signal. So I think you'll find, if you look, your food choices are much broader, at least in the bigger national parks than they ever have been before. If you're just joining us, our guest today at the Commonwealth Club of California is Sally Jewell, U.S. Secretary of the Interior. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, you clearly are an avid outdoors enthusiast and have traveled to Hawaii, Alaska, the Pacific Islands. What impacts have, of climate change have you seen? Every place I've gone, the impact of climate change has been very evident. Uh, here in California, you've got a problem with water. Uh, I hope you know that. I hope you use as little of it as possible and that you appreciate just how critical it is to everything uh, that we are as a people. Well, 98% of us, right? Um, I had one trip that actually took me from 77 degrees north latitude to 7 degrees north latitude. Uh, 77 degrees is Barrow, Alaska. 7 degrees is the Marshall Islands. In Kaktovik, Alaska, which is in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, um, a village that, uh, there, they are having their runway wash away because of coastal erosion. That's happening in large measure because the pack ice is moving out sooner, uh, and you've got a lot more battering from waves. I saw along the uh, coast erosion that was dramatic. Huge chunks of ice between the, the layer of soil and uh, the layer of ground soil, big chunk of ice, as that's exposed, as it melts, you're going to see local wetlands there that are critical habitat drain. So the, the runway in Kaktovik is being moved because the current runway is washing away. I saw, I personally counted 29 polar bears near the runway in Kaktovik. So why are the bears there? They, they would normally be on the ice, but as the ice moves farther out, it's moved them more to shore. Um, seven degrees north latitude, the Marshall Islands. 
the highest point in the Marshall Islands is a bridge between two islands, and it's 30 feet tall. It's a coral atoll in the Pacific. Uh, it was uh, critical to the United States during World War II. It's why we have an ongoing relationship with the Marshall Islands and why I was there. Um, the Marshall Islands' average uh, height can't be more than about 10 feet, maybe 15. Uh, it won't be there with sea level rise. The runway that I landed on in the Marshall Islands in Marjoro was also washing away because of coastal erosion. So there were sandbags along the side of that runway to uh, mitigate the erosion. Climate change is everywhere. We see invasive species throughout um, the grasslands and the plains. We see hotter wildfires, and don't you know about that in California? Uh, wildfires that are so hot, they kill everything. They'll turn some of the soil into a glass. Uh, not something that, that uh, it, you can naturally recover from. So it's very real. And uh, for those of you that enjoy the landscapes and get out in the landscapes, you see it, see it and you feel it. And one of the reasons I uh, was delighted when I got the call for this job is uh, this is a job where you actually have an opportunity to do something about it. And it's important for all of us to do something, uh, our own part in whatever we can do. So it's big. What can an average person do to combat climate change? It seems so big that many people wonder, what can I do that has an impact? Well, there's the small things, which is the best electron uh, is the one you don't use to begin with. The best uh, drop of water is the one you don't uh, waste. Uh, And uh, the best drop of gasoline is the one that you don't burn to begin with. So I think we all play a role in terms of our lifestyles, how we live our lives, uh, how we use our resources, and how we conserve our resources. So conservation is really critical. But the other thing I would say is your voices are important as citizens of this great democracy. And when you bring your voices to my new home of Washington, D.C., they do make a difference. When you cast a ballot at the ballot box here, you need to make sure that the people that represent you align with the things that are important to you. So uh, are they addressing the issues that you care about most around uh, water conservation, water recycling and reuse in California, uh, wildfire mitigation, taking care of public lands, uh, looking for ways to incent the right kinds of behaviors? I'm a business person. I did that, did business for 35 years. I've been a public servant for six months. Uh, In the business community, you can... um, you, you will change your behavior based on the incentives that you're given by the policies that are set by elected officials. So in California, you have a renewable energy uh, requirement for the state of 33%. That drives a market for renewable energy that uh, creates uh, demand for, um, or not, well, it creates demand. The supply then comes to fill that demand as a land management uh, agency. We're part of supporting that. Uh, you can make a decisions with your policies and the people that you elect to represent you that actually will affect the outcome of climate change. So I would encourage all of you to be active in doing that and all of you to consider um, providing support to the kinds of things that will actually provide a financial equation that will get uh, drive companies to do the right thing that aligns with what you want to do from a climate change standpoint as well. President Obama outlined his climate plan earlier this year in a speech uh, in Washington where he was very on a very hot day. 
Um, how is that coming along? Is that real or is that a lot of speeches, a lot of presidents make a pronouncements and then time goes by and not a lot happens? What's really happening with that plan? Oh, it's uh, very real and I'm very proud to work for President Obama and uh, proud of the speech that he gave. And yes, I was in the front row in a black dress, which I had to go straight to the cleaners because it was soaked. That was a very, very hot day. Probably good, though, when you're talking about climate change. Um, so he has charged... Uh, the Department of the Interior with doubling the uh, permitting for renewable energy projects on public lands. He laid out a goal uh, of 10,000 megawatts of, uh, of electricity generation on public lands by 2015. We've already beaten that goal, so he doubled it to 20,000 megawatts by 2020. We will be on our, well on our way to achieving that goal, um, working alongside industry and environmental, uh, environmentalists and communities. So, I mean, that's one tangible thing that's going on. Uh, he has used the megaphone very loudly to say, you know, we're not, no longer debating climate change. It is here. We must, uh, do something about it. So the other thing I would say that, uh, you will see impact everything that we do uh, is to think through a lens of climate change. How do we prepare for it? How do we mitigate for it? How do we adapt our landscapes to it? So uh, there was a pretty bad storm a year and a few days ago in the East Coast. Uh, I have been to wildlife refuges that were filled with 22 miles of debris from Superstorm Sandy. Um, that's the bad news. They were boats, there were propane tanks, there were refrigerators, all kinds of stuff washed up on your shores at the uh, Edwin Forsyth National Wildlife Refuge in New Jersey. But that shore protected, that wetlands, protected uh, buildings and residences inland by taking the storm's fury. And you know what? Uh, we're cleaning it up, but we also learn from Mother Nature and know that when we protect our shorelines, uh, by learning from Mother Nature, whether it's dunes or grasses or mangrove swamps uh, in the south, that we uh, we are adapting ourselves and our landscapes to uh, to climate change. So uh, the president has charged us with do that uh, with doing that. There's a lot of support in the Hurricane Sandy uh, uh, package that enables us to do that. We've put out a hundred million dollar competitive grant. Uh, process from the Department of the Interior to generate innovative ideas uh, in mitigating against climate change uh, that we can use learning the lessons from Hurricane Sandy. So those are just a handful of things, but every one of the uh, departments is charged with doing their part. We're talking at the Commonwealth Club, U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell. I'm Greg Dalton. Can the administration, though, be a real serious climate leader and also promote more coal extraction, more oil drilling at some point? Isn't there a, a either-or situation? Can it have it both ways? More energy, more carbon, more hydrocarbons, and say we're serious about climate. Well, the short answer is you, you can't go immediately from one source of energy to another source of energy overnight. We have grown this country uh, with the support of, of carbon pollution, whether it was coal or oil and gas. That has uh, been in large measure what has driven the industry in this country, and you can't turn it off in a heartbeat. The president, through the EPA, has instituted CAFE standards for cars that will make an enormous difference in terms of using policy to reduce carbon pollution. It's a very, very important step forward. 
So it's policies that drive behaviors by the automobile industry that increase the fuel economy of cars and therefore reduce the amount that we use. And uh, states consider driving behaviors through their own uh, mechanisms around taxing um, to uh, to try and, and uh, change behaviors. Um, so uh, there is still stationary power sources, coal plants is the next thing that might happen there. Um, That's right. You, the EPA has uh, been discussing uh, rules around air quality that will uh, certainly impact coal-fired power plants in terms of the expectations of what they need to do to clean up the uh, air emissions. The U.S. Geological Survey uh, published a study not too long ago about uh, car- ca- carbon capture and sequestration, which is applying technologies to potentially re-inject the carbon uh, into the earth. Um, you know, there's we can't switch from a fossil fuel-based economy to a renewable energy economy overnight. So, yes, we're going to still continue to develop those resources, but we're also going to stand up renewable resources. And, and we have to do both if we're going to have an economy, uh, if we're going to continue to uh, um, uh, to grow and develop as a, as a country and provide opportunities for the young people. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's important that we do both. One phrase that's often talked about is energy independence. We're going to be energy independent. That's very popular. It has bipartisan support. Everyone likes the idea of energy independence. But you've worked in the energy industry. Uh, is it really possible to be energy independent? And what's really important is price independence. Even if the U.S. could supply its, its energy needs, the price would be set globally, and we will never really become price independent, which is what matters. We can't drill our way to lower energy prices. Is that right? Well, it's a, you know, oil and gas is a commodity and it is priced on the world market. And, um, so you can, so that, I mean, you know, there's, if we have an energy boom here and it lowers the price, uh, that might affect the supply and demand equation. That might affect worldwide prices. We don't really control that. I mean, other countries control what people pay for gas with taxes and uh, and and other uh, you know forms of uh, of impacts. But basically, the price it's a worldwide commodity price. Energy independence, though, does enable us to be independent of other countries on whom we are now dependent. Uh, when you look at the conflict in the Middle East and you look at our dependence on oil that flows from uh, the Middle East, uh, it's uh, it's worrisome. Uh, it's caused uh, a lot of loss of life. Uh, it's caused a lot of conflict around the world. And so to the extent that we have an opportunity to shape our own energy future, that's a good thing. And the president believes it's a good thing as well. And if the president called you and said, Sally, what should I do about Keystone XL? What would you say? I'd say you should call John Kerry because it's an international issue. <laughs> um it is uh, it actually because it is uh, between Canada and the United States. The decision on the Keystone XL pipeline is with the Department of State, so it will run across some federal lands. If uh, if it goes forward, we will do our part as the Department of the Interior. But I'm not in the middle of that uh, that discussion. One you don't have to decide. Uh, fracking for natural gas and a little bit for oil is a very big topic these days. In recent elections in Colorado, a couple of small towns passed a ban on fracking. In Ohio, uh, voters rejected uh, two bans on fracking in Youngstown and Bowling Green. Uh, but it's something like 100 municipalities have some kind of ban or moratorium on fracking. 
Uh, there's a fair amount of fracking that could happen on federal lands that you oversee. Um, are you satisfied with the current uh, guidelines and regulation of fracking? So there's a lot of misinformation about fracking. And I, how many people in the room here have fracked a well before? One. One besides me. Another one, yeah. You okay. did, did it with your hands, right? Yeah, I fracked it with my hands. Yeah. No, I didn't do it with my hands. But um, fracking has been around for decades. And there is a tremendous amount of misinformation out there about it. A lot of fear that I think is unfounded, uh, but also uh, an opportunity for the industry to be far more transparent and open and explain the practice so that there isn't as much, much information, misinformation. Um, fracking has been a common technique for what you call well completions, which is you drill a well and then you have to get through the pipes and everything into where the oil or gas is, and so you puncture the pipe and you push some fluid in there with what's called propant, which is sand, to hold open the cracks so that the oil and gas can flow back. Been done for years. Um, there is new techniques in fracking, which is done horizontally. It's dr- the well is drilled horizontally, and it's fracked in stages, and it, it's enabling people to extract oil and gas from very, very tight formations that would otherwise be like rock. Um, it is important that we do these things safely and responsibly. And part of my job is to make sure that on federal lands, we have regulations in place that ensure that uh, we are applying the best available science, uh, the best available technology, monitoring to uh, ensure that we are not impacting groundwater or other resources. So uh, the Bureau of Land Management has had a draft fracking rule in place um, Put it out last year, got a lot of comments, put out a second uh, rule, got a lot of comments, uh, 1.3 million to be exact, uh, which the period for that closed in August. We're uh, reading through all of those. Some are, are, are form comments, but others are uh, custom, I guess you'd say, and uh, very thoughtful and very complicated. So we're digesting that, and we will be coming out with some regulations for fracking on public lands, which will be the minimum standard. And if states choose to have tougher standards, then on public lands we will apply those state standards in the, in the states we operate. But the reality is this is, is new for a lot of states. Some states have no regulations. Some have very sophisticated regulations. And we want to make sure that on public lands we have uh, very good baseline uh, regulations that the public can, can feel good about in terms of uh, making sure that it's being done safely and responsibly and not uh, running the risk of impacting um, water supplies or otherwise. Senator Bob Casey uh, in, in Pennsylvania, which there's a lot of fracking happening there, uh, has a bill that would propose closing the Halliburton loophole, uh, but which exempts fracking from the Clean Drinking Water Act. What do you think about that? Is that something the administration supports? I'm not familiar with the specific uh, rule that you're talking about. But are you familiar with the fracking is exempt from the Clean Water Drinking Act? That, that That's the Halliburton loophole? So that a lot of the regular things that apply to industrial uh, contamination of water supplies doesn't apply to fracking. So I'm not intimately familiar with that because it's EPA's uh, okay. jurisdiction. Uh, Gina McCarthy, head of EPA, who's a fantastic person, by the way, uh, and I have talked about this and, you know, what she is doing to ensure that uh, from a regulatory standpoint that uh, loopholes and things are cleaned up, but I can't speak specifically to that because I'm not uh, not steeped in that. The Inspector General of the Department of Interior recently uh, issued a report that was 
pointed out some weaknesses in the pricing of coal extracted from public land, saying that it didn't really take account of export markets. A lot of the coal is being exported now because there's dropping demand in, in the United States. So what can you say to taxpayers who want to make sure they're getting a fair deal on coal extracted from public lands, that the royalties are being paid and they're being paid fully? Oh, I, I think it's absolutely critical that as a steward of your public lands that you get a fair return on the investment that you have and that we hold uh, developers accountable for uh, what they are extracting and what they're paying and make sure that they're paying a fair price. So we have a, a um, group called the Office of Natural Resources Revenue that does exactly that. Uh, the IG's report that we had on that did show that we had an opportunity to um, investigate and uh, make sure we were holding developers accountable, and that's what we're doing. So uh, feel good about their work. Should wolves be delisted from the Endangered Species Act? The Fish and Wildlife Service, which oversees the Endangered Species Act, says yes. Uh, and the wolves are a, a, a species that conjures up very strong feelings, uh, people who really love wolves and people who really don't love wolves. And uh, the fact is the Endangered Species Act protects species that are in danger uh, of going extinct. And the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, is confident that the wolves are no longer in, in danger of going extinct. And so they have recommended delisting the wolves, and it's uh, in a comment period right now. Uh, so I support their position. What happens when you do a delisting of something like the gray wolf is management of the species then goes to the states. Guarantee you the Fish and Wildlife Service will be watching carefully the state's regulations. They'll be providing support where they can uh, to assist the states in thoughtful wolf management plans. But if there is a problem, they will uh, intervene, as they have before. So uh, while the wolf has not got back to its historic range, it is no longer uh, at risk of going extinct, and therefore uh, it's a candidate for delisting. We talked about water earlier. It's clearly California is very aware of its water stress, climate change uh predicted to have less snowpack, et cetera. You also have the Bureau of Reclamation, a lot of water management. What is the federal government going to do? Uh, in the past, it's been about increasing water supply, more dams, more concrete. The future may be very different. How are you going to approach that, water management? One of the priorities I laid out uh, for the Department of the Interior had to do with sustainable, secure water supplies and healthy watersheds. And uh, California is a place where this is very, very uh, critical. You have had challenges in your snowpack. Uh, I come from the Pacific Northwest. Our reservoirs are called snowpack, and they have been diminishing just as yours have. We don't have enough storage capacity to take liquid water and hold it to make up for what you hold in the Sierras in snow, and you haven't had enough snow to deal with that. So we've got a crisis. We've got a crisis going on in the Bay Delta. Uh, we have... The United States fruit basket and nut basket, not intended to be fruits and nuts in any, any way other than that's what you produce in the Central Valley in large quantities. Very, very important uh, agricultural supply, but uses a lot of water. You have municipal uh, needs here. Uh, you have an ecosystem that if we don't provide sufficient water to support the ecosystem, you could have an ecosystem collapse here in California. That's how serious it is within the Bay Delta. The Bureau of Reclamation is a critical player. The state is a critical player. Water rights are managed by states. Uh, 
federal government has a role to play as a water supplier to states and municipalities, um, and we are at the table. We're keeping people to the table, working closely on things like the Bay Delta Conservation Plan that's trying to manage agricultural interests, municipal interests, uh, species interests uh, at a time when the water resources are, are going down. So I do have one recommendation for all of you, and I brought this with me from REI, which is uh, this time of year to bring on snow because REI's business was very dependent on snow sports in the wintertime. We used to take Twinkies and burn them to a crisp. So I would encourage you to burn Twinkies, even though it doesn't help carbon. It does produce carbon. But uh, that did bring on snow. And I know uh, visiting an REI store earlier this week in Minnesota that they'd had their Twinkie roast. And so, and it was snowing the day I left Minnesota. So I don't know what you do in California, but whether it's Twinkie roast or rain dances, you need some rain. But you also need thoughtful planning. And we will be at your side through the Bureau of Reclamation to do that. might also just uh, say that I have been operating without a deputy since David Hayes left and came here to Stanford and the Hewlett Foundation. Darn him. But he's been in this forum before. He's a great guy, really knowledgeable on water issues. But uh, his replacement, who is uh, going through the Senate process right now and we hope will be confirmed soon, is a fellow named Mike Connor, and his specialty is water. Indian water rights settlements, uh, Colorado River, Bay Delta, he knows his stuff on water, which I'm very grateful for because this is going to be big during the time that I'm in this job. And uh, if you're not worried about it, you should be uh, in California. Some dams have come down. Will more dams come down? Well, I uh, was at the USGS yesterday in Menlo Park and had a briefing on the Elwha Dam removal in my home state of Washington. Uh, these are old dams. Uh, I've been there. Uh, you actually can look down off the uh, original Elwha Dam and see salmon red waiting to go up the river, bouncing their noses literally off the face of the dam. It just breaks your heart. Um, that dam is now gone. Uh, the silt that built up behind it is now washing out and rebuilding the uh, the mouth, which is very, very critical to the uh, Indian tribes that are in that area, and it's a real success story. And I think that uh, dams like the Glines Canyon and the Elwha Dam uh, need to be removed. Very, very expensive, special appropriations from the federal government to do that, uh, not something you're, you're going to do without special support. But dams are also important to our hydroelectric uh, supply. They're important to your water. You wouldn't have the kind of water that you have here now if it wasn't for dams and reservoirs and storage. So uh, I would say that um, you will have some dams come down when they need to. You'll have some low-head hydro put in that produces hydroelectricity without dams. We'll see that as well. I don't think you'll see wholesale removals, but I do think you'll see a better understanding of the positive and the negatives of dams, and when uh, removal is justified, you'll, you'll see some things like the Elwha uh, happen in other areas as well. Our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's turn to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Um, another aspect of, of getting people into parks is recreation. The G-Generator was created to, quote, expand to the maximum extent possible the outdoor recreation opportunities available to the region. It was all about recreation. Now they're changing their plans, and their management plan is, is to manage their lands, including land in San Francisco, for the uh, backcountry visitor experience, which they define as being low visitor use, controlled access, few amenities, and where, quote, challenge, risk, and testing of outdoor skills would be important to most visitors. 
And this is Fort Funston, Ocean Beach, Chrissy Field, uh, basically and your, urban parks. The question parts. is? The question is, what are you going to do to help us preserve traditional recreation in the urban parks that are the GGNRA and keep people going and using them? The Golden Gate National Recreation Area. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm not familiar with what you were citing in terms of uh, the um, uh, the policies, but I will say this, that recreation is, is a very important component to public lands. It does engage people in them. That was the business that I came from most recently, $646 billion industry that supports 6.1 million jobs. So it's a very important part of it, but recreation has its impacts, and uh, so balanced use is really thoughtful, uh, is really important. National parks uh, are not just for this generation, but they're for future generations. They are lands that are to be managed in perpetuity, and sometimes we can love and recreate our lands to death, so having a good balance is important. And I'll offer a tip to uh, the audience that we tape these, and then we, we edit them a little bit before we put them on the radio, and the long questions get cut out. So the shorter your question, the better chance it is. It's going uh, Yes, okay, welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Um, my question is also about recreation. A week ago, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors unanimously passed a resolution opposing the National Park Service preferred alternative for dog management in the GGNRA. The supervisors urged the GGNRA to permit greater access to traditional recreation, such as dog walking, which has been there for many decades. Given the need for recreation, supported also by the National Park Service's own Healthy Parks, Healthy People initiative, will you reconsider the dog management plan, which is opposed by the very city in which it is supposed to be implemented, and also by more than three to one of those who commented on the initial plan? So I'm a dog owner myself, uh love places where I can take my dog out, but I also know that uh, some people don't love dogs in the same way. And I think what the Park Service is trying to do is strike a healthy balance between uh, those who like to have their pets with them and those who may be afraid, allergic, or otherwise to pets, and to manage the land uh, recognizing those multiple uses. So I'm not familiar, as you might expect, with the details of the dog management plan and the GGNRA, but I know that that's what the balance that they're trying to strike. Uh, so people are passionate about their pets, and I understand that. We want to be accommodating, but we also want to accommodate all guests and make sure that the visitor experience is, is positive, and, and uh, sometimes that means compromise. Let's have our uh, next question for Secretary Jewell at Climate One. Uh, hi, Secretary Jewell. Thank you for being here today. Um, I just wanted to bring up the coal leasing plan under the Bureau of Land Management. Um, I appreciate the Department of Interior's leadership in ramping up renewable energy production, um, but I'm worried that the leasing of coal um, might undermine the president's climate action plan. Uh, it unlocks billions of tons of carbon pollution uh, from selling publicly owned coal at subsidized prices. So can you, Secretary Jewell, commit to a moratorium on new leased coal in order to avoid undermining the president's climate plan? Well, the short answer is no, I'm not going to uh, to call for a moratorium. We did have a coal lease sale recently at the Bureau of Land Management, and no one bid on the coal. Uh, so, you know, the market is speaking, and uh, as rules and regulations like the ones discussed by the EPA are put in place, it will change the economics of coal. And uh, so 
we will continue to support development of the resources uh, in a way that supports what's important to the American people. But uh, when nobody bids on the coal, uh, the coal stays in the ground. Let's have our next question for Secretary Jewell. Hi, my name is Deborah Bardwick. I work for an interior agency. Uh, and I wanted to thank you so much for your advocacy and your encouragement, especially during the shutdown. My question has to do with renewable energy on the ground here in California. Uh, I'm sure you're very aware that there are proposals for renewable energy projects that are visible from national parks, would be sited on Bureau of Land Management land, and may involve threatened and endangered species, which, of course, involves the Fish and Wildlife Agency. Do you have any insight on how to balance the agency demands? The Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan is a plan in process between the State of California, the uh, departments, uh, the bureaus within the Department of the Interior, a number of nonprofit organizations, community organizations, um, and it's a great illustration of landscape-level conservation, which is something that I've called for in my first secretarial order. It's about energy development being mitigated on a landscape level. Um, I have two friends, personal friends, that have been counting tortoises in the Mojave Desert for several years, long before I took this job. Um, there is a lot of science going on in the ground to understand what is the critical habitat for uh, threatened species like the desert tortoise. What are the areas of highest potential? Where is the transmission corridors? You know, what are the impacts? Uh, what are the impacts visually from a place like a national park? Um, and those things are all being taken into account uh, Organizations like the Nature Conservancy, Defenders of Wildlife, and others, uh, Audubon, at the table, making these uh, kinds of decisions. Wind energy, what's the impact on birds? Where is the, uh, the migration corridors? What, do you, what can you do to mitigate the impact, uh, like shutting turbines down when you detect birds in the area? All of these things are happening, but uh, nothing is free. And if we want to get away from carbon energy, uh, wind energy and solar energy are important, but their impacts, we have to understand them and we have to mitigate them, and that's exactly what you are doing as pioneers here in California with, uh, in the Mojave Desert. Thank you. Let's have our next question for Secretary Jewell. Uh, is this administration prepared to accept a simple challenge to designate at least as many national monument acres as the Clinton administration? <laughs> and to use the Antiquities Act to do it. We don't think that uh, acres is the right measure. There are great opportunities to set lands aside. Uh, there are several dozen bills in Congress that have stalled out and gone nowhere. Uh, this president signed the Omnibus Public Lands Act of 2009, setting aside a tremendous number of acres, millions of acres, um, that had stalled out in Congress and got through. We need to take uh, congressional action and get things moving uh, by elected officials that care and can bring the perspectives of their districts to bear. So that's uh, number one priority. I, I said in my speech a week ago um, that we want Congress to act. Uh, we want the people to speak through their elected officials, but if they don't, uh, the Obama administration is willing to use the tools in its toolbox to act, including the Antiquities Act. We want to make sure that the right lands are set aside that need to be set aside, uh, it's not about acres. It's not about uh, uh, quantity. It's about quality. And it's about uh, working with those areas where there's uh, uh, great community support because you know your lands better than somebody sitting in Washington, D.C. does. And uh, that's what's going to drive uh, our actions. The uh, Seattle Post-Intelligencer, uh, where you used to live, uh, wrote a column recently that said the Obama White House approach on conservation was don't bother us. 
that they wanted uh, unanimity but no political cost. So I just want to come back a little bit and say, is 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 there are you doing enough to sort of go after some of these uh, land offsets or, or conservation tracks? I think that uh, I've had nothing but support from my boss uh, and the administration broadly on a conservation agenda. Uh, there's tremendous interest in doing what's right for the American people as it relates to conservation. And uh, really, the president is looking for people like myself and Tom Vilsack, who oversees the uh, U.S. Forest Service, to identify opportunities for conservation. So we've had nothing but support to do that. We do have a great opportunity, and I, I used Land Water Conservation Fund as a great illustration of 50 years ago the foresight people to take revenues from offshore oil and gas production and turn them into important conservation objectives onshore. Uh, that, that is a blunt instrument. A sharper instrument is to say how do we, uh, like we're doing in the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska, make 72% of the recoverable, economically recoverable oil available but set aside 50% of the land because it's critical for habitat. That's the kind of uh, thoughtful landscape-level approach that we're using, and, and we certainly got to support from the administration. Thank you. Um, let's have our next question for U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, you've established yourself as a businesswoman who understands the need to uh, adapt to climate change or, excuse me, fight climate change and the challenge in, in making that transition. So I'm going to take a wild guess and say that you support a price on carbon. Uh, your boss hasn't been quite so clear about that. You're in a unique position as Secretary of the Interior. How can you get President Obama to aggressively push for a price on carbon? The President has made it very clear that uh, carbon pollution is an issue. And uh, our focus in the administration is about reducing carbon pollution. Uh, there are ways to do that that will require congressional action. There's a lot of uh, opportunity in uh, the areas we control like uh, regulation of carbon, uh, like the CAFE standards on cars, like standing up renewable energy projects, and that's been our focus. Thank you. Let's have our next question. Climate One, welcome. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Um, my question is concerned with the use of the public lands for wildlife versus ranch use, and specifically for the wild horses and the burrows that are being rounded up. I've been reading a lot about that lately. And everywhere I read, the BLM is demonized incredibly and mistrusted. And I just want you to speak to what is the truth about what's going on with that. Thanks for the question. Um, wild horses and burrows do generate a lot of passion on, on both sides of the equation. So um, I think it's back in the 70s. A law was passed uh, supporting wild horses on public lands. And... Uh, the challenge that the BLM has had over time is that uh, wild horses are good proliferators. Uh, they double, a herd doubles in size every three and a half years. So we're now at a situation where our public lands are beyond their uh, carrying capacity without uh, having significant impacts. Uh, the BLM has tried a variety of different mechanisms to uh, keep the herd size in check. Uh, birth control. A uh, lot less control over veterinary pharmaceuticals than there are over human pharmaceuticals, and they've had varied results uh, because the formulations are, are in fact, different. 
so they have done roundups and they've taken wild horses and burros and they've put them in um, holding facilities because the land carrying capacity is uh, not there and the herds are are growing. Uh, the National Academy of Sciences was commissioned to do some a study on behalf of the BLM to understand this issue better. They validated that the herd size does, in fact, double every three and a half years. They recommended uh, birth control as a viable method, but uh, they didn't talk about how to do it in a cost-effective way and in a uh, pharmaceutically effective way. So the uh, short answer is we would love support from the pharmaceutical industry and the veterinary industry to come up with a reliable way of uh, uh, providing birth control that is also affordable to the American taxpayer uh, because we're really in a very, very difficult situation now some um, 30 years plus, 40 years after this law passed that uh, we, we uh, don't have the carrying capacity for all the wild horses and burros on the lands that we have. Um, so that's, uh, that's the fact. Thank you. We have time for one or two more questions. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Hi. Um, thank you for your comments on uh, coal. But um, how can we, on one hand, say that we have a moral imperative to tackle climate change and, on the other hand, still pursue new federal coal leasing, um, and especially leases where there are only one, one bidder and they walk out with coal at $1.11 a ton? Uh, is there a way that we can stop that kind of of leasing on on federal land? Thank you. Uh, you know, we we could certainly look at the return that we get as a federal land management firm. That's our agency. That is what uh, the Office of Natural Resources Revenue and the BLM uh, work in concert to do. I think it's a fair point. Uh, I also know that we can't shut off coal. Uh, I'm sure that the lights in my office in Washington, D.C. are powered by coal because that is uh, largely what powers uh, large parts of the uh, eastern seaboard. Uh, you can't just shut it off, and it's important that we make that resource available. Uh, it's also important that we encourage new resources. So I think uh, you, you raise a fair point, but I will also say that uh, we've had coal lease sales where there have been no bidders, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Please. Welcome Thank to Climate you. One. Yes, Ms. Secretary, uh, considering that you've only been in the job a short time, you're incredibly well-versed in a number of issues. I appreciate that. My question harkens back to your original um, statement regarding the, California, regarding the Civilian Conservation Corps and how important the CCC was in the 1930s to our parks and public lands. You described kind of a CCC 2.0, mm-hmm. but you described it as a volunteer program. And I just wanted to point out that the CCC in the 1930s was actually an economic stimulus package Correct. that provided jobs and paid young people to work, and some of that money went back to the local economies and helped stimulate the U.S. economy out of the Depression. And I'm just wondering if you could um, perhaps um, flesh out the ideas for this CCC 2.0 and how you see it rolling out. Okay, in 30 seconds or yes, less, right? <laughs> okay, so um, short answer is you're absolutely right. Uh, young people I worked alongside today were getting job skills and will get job opportunities as a result of that. Uh, there are many young people who are employed uh, by organizations like the Student Conservation Association that rally volunteers. So it's, a, it's an opportunity to both provide jobs but also leverage those who have jobs to those that are working as volunteers that are building job skills that will make them um, available to 
uh, or make them qualified to take jobs in the future. So it's a way we can expand it in a, in a large way. But you're right. It has to be a blend. And one of the goals that I didn't mention was 100,000 jobs uh, over four years in federal land management agencies going to uh, young people and uh, veterans um, who uh, represent also this millennial generation. So we're going to create jobs ourselves. We're also raising $20 million from the private sector to help support this program. Uh, and we think that there are a number of businesses that will be very willing to do that. So you're absolutely right. Uh, money in the pocket is important, but job skills are also important, and we can do that with volunteers as well as uh, those that we can afford to pay. I've been doing this quite a while. It had a lot of high government officials here. That is the longest line we have ever had uh, here at the Commonwealth <laughs> Club. So clearly people care about what you're doing. We'd like to thank U.S. Secretary of the Interior Sally Jewell for her comments here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening on the radio at Intro. Thank you.